Section 51, Chapter 42 of Deerbrook. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gary Day. Deerbrook by Harriet Martineau. Section 51, Chapter 42. Church Going. Hester went to church the next Sunday as she wished to hear Dr. Levitt's promised plain sermon on the duties of the times. Margaret gladly stayed at home with the baby, thankful for the relief from the sight of sickness and for the quiet of solitude while the infant slept. Edward was busy among those who wanted his good offices, as he was now almost without intermission. Hester had to go alone. Everything abroad looked very strange, quite unlike the common Sunday aspect of the place. The streets were empty, except that a party of mourners were returning from a funeral. Either people were already in church, or nobody was going. She quickened her pace in the fear that she might be late, though the bell seemed to assure her that she was not. Widow Rye's little garden plot was all covered with linen put out to dry, and Mrs. Rye may be seen through the window at the wash-tub. The want of fresh linen was so pressing that the sick must not be kept waiting, though it was Sunday. Miss Nares and Miss Flint were in curl-papers plying their needles. They had been up all night, and were now putting the last stitches to a suit of family mourning, which was to enable the bereaved to attend afternoon church. Miss Nares looked quite haggard as well she might, having scarcely left her seat for the last fortnight, except to take orders for mourning, and to snatch a scanty portion of rest. She had endeavoured to procure an additional workwoman or two from among her neighbours, and then from Blickley, but her neighbours were busy with their domestic troubles, and the Blickley people wanted more mourning than their hands there could supply. So Miss Nares and Miss Flint had been compelled to work night and day, till they both looked as if they had the sickness, and were justified in saying that no money could pay them for what they were un undergoing. They began earnestly to wish what they had till now deprecated, that Dr. Levitt might succeed in inducing some of his flock to forego the practice of wearing mourning. But of this there was little prospect. The people were as determined upon wearing black as upon having the bell tolled for the dead and Miss Nair's heart sank at the prospect before her, if the epidemic should continue, and she should be able to get no help. Almost every second house in the place was shut up. The blank windows of the cottages, where plants or smiling faces were usually to be seen on a Sunday morning, looked dreary. The inhabitants of many of the better dwellings were absent. There were no voices of children about the little courts, no groups of boys under the churchyard wall, of those who had frequented this spot, several were under the sod. Some were laid low in fever within the houses, and others were with their parents, forming a larger congregation around the fortune-teller's tents in the lanes than Dr. Levitt could assemble in the church. Hester heard the strokes of the hammer and the saw as she passed the closed shop of the carpenter, who was also the undertaker. She knew that people were making coffins by candlelight within, Happening to look around after she had passed, she saw a woman come out, wan in countenance, and carrying under her cloak something which a puff of wind showed to be an infant's coffin. 
a sight from which every young mother averts her eyes. As Hester approached a cottage whose thatch had not been weeded for long, she was startled by a howl and a whine from within, and a dog, emaciated to the last degree, sprang upon the sill of an open window. A neighbour who perceived her shrink back and hesitate to pass assured her that she need not be afraid of the dog. The poor animal would not leave the place, whose inmates were all dead of the fever. The window was left open for the dog's escape, but he never came out, though he looked famished. Some persons had thrown food in at first, but now no one had time or thought to spare for dogs. Mr. Walcott issued from a house near the church as Hester passed, and he stopped her. He was roused or frightened out of his usual simplicity of manner, and observed with an air of deep anxiety that he trusted Mr. Hope had better success with his patients than he could boast of. The disease was most terrific, and the saving of a life was a chance now seemingly too rare to be reckoned on. It really required more strength than most men had to stand by their duty at such a time, when they could do little more than see their patients die. Hester thought him so much moved that at this moment he was hardly fit for business. She said, We all have need of all our strength. I do not know whether worship gives it to you as it does to me. Will it not be an hour or even half an hour well spent if you go there with me? Pointing to the church. You will say you are wanted elsewhere, but will you not be stronger and calmer for the comfort you may find there? I should like it. I have always been in the habit of going to church. It would do me good, I know. But, Mrs. Hope, how is this? I thought you had been a dissenter. I always said so. I have been very wrong, very ill-natured. I am a dissenter, said Hester, smiling, but you are not, and therefore I may urge you to go to church. As for the rest of the mystery, I will explain it when we have more time. Meanwhile, I hope you do not suppose that dissenters do not worship, and need and love worship as other people do. Mr. Walcott replied by timidly offering his arm, which Hester accepted, and they entered the church together. The Rowlands were already in their pew. There was a general commotion among the children when they saw Mrs. Hope and Mr. Walcott walking up the aisle arm in arm. Matilda called her mother's attention to the remarkable fact, and the little heads all whispered together. The church looked really almost empty. There were no hunters with their train of servants. There were no levits. The Miss Andersons had not entered Deerbrook for weeks, and Maria Young sat alone in the large double pew commonly occupied by her scholars. There was a sprinkling of poor, but Hester observed that every one in the church was in mourning but Maria and herself. It looked sadly chill and dreary. The sights and sounds she had met, and the aspect of the place she was in, disposed her to welcome every thought of comfort that the voice of the preacher could convey. There were others to whom consolation appeared even more necessary than to herself. Philip Enderby had certainly seen her, and was distressed at it. He could not have expected to meet her there, and his composure was obvious. He looked thin and grave, not to say subdued. Hester was surprised to find how she relented towards him, the moment she saw he was not gay and careless, and how her feelings grew softer and softer under the religious emotions of the hour. 
She was so near forgiving him that she was very glad Margaret was not by her side. If she could forgive, how would it be with Margaret? The next most melancholy person present, perhaps, was Mr. Walcott. He knew that the whole family of the Rowlands remained in Deerbrook, from Mrs. Rowland's ostentation of confidence in his skill. He knew that Mr. Rowland would have removed his family when the Greys departed, but that the lady had refused to go, and how he felt how groundless was her confidence, not that he had pretended to more professional merit than he had believed himself to possess, but that amidst this disease he was like a willow twig in the stream. He became so impressed with his responsibilities now, in the presence of the small and sad-faced congregation, that he could not refrain from whispering to Hester that he could never be thankful enough that Mr. Hope had not left Deerbrook long ago, and that he hoped they should be friends henceforth, that Mr. Hope would take his proper place again, and forgive and forget all that had passed. He thought he might trust Mr. Hope not to desert him and Deerbrook now. Hester smiled gently, but made no reply, and did not appear to notice the proffered hand. It was no time or place to ratify a compact for her husband in his absence. All this time Mr. Walcott's countenance and manner were sufficiently subdued, but his agitation increased when the solemn voice of Dr. Levitt uttered the prayer. "'Have pity upon us miserable sinners, who are now visited with great sickness and mortality.' Here the voice of weeping became so audible from the lower part of the church that the preacher stopped for a moment to give other people, and possibly himself, time to recover composure. Then he went on, That, like as thou didst then accept of an, of an atonement, and didst command the destroying angel to cease from punishing, so may it now please thee to withdraw us from this plague and grievous sickness through Jesus Christ our Lord. Everybody in the church uttered, Amen, except Mr. Walcott's. He was struggling with his sobs, unexpected and excessive as were the tokens of his grief. Hester could not but respect it. It was so much better than gross selfishness, carelessness, that she could pity and almost honour it. She felt that Mr. Walcott was as far superior to the quacks who were making a market of the credulity of the suffering people as her husband, with his professional decision, his manly composure, and his forgetfulness of the injuries of his foes, in their hour of suffering, was above Mr. Walcott. The poor young man drank in, as if they were direct from heaven, the suggestions contained in the preacher's plain sermon on the duties of the time. Plain it was indeed, familiarly practical to an unexampled degree, so that most of his hearers quitted the church with a far clearer notion of their business as nurses and neighbours than they ever had before. The effect was visible as they left their seats in the brightening of their countenances and the increased activity of their step as they walked. "'There, go,' said Hester kindly to her companion. "'Many must be wanting you, but you have lost no time by coming here.' "'No, indeed, but Mr. Hope, rely upon him.' He will do his duty. Go and do yours. God bless you, cried Walcott, squeezing her hand affectionately. Mrs. Rowland saw this, as she always saw everything. 
she beckoned to Mr. Walcott with her most engaging smile, and whispered him with an air of the most intimate confidence, till she saw that her presence was wanted elsewhere. Then she let him go. Mr. Rowland, followed by Philip, slipped out of his pew as Hester passed, and walked down the aisle with her. He was glad to see her there. He hoped it was a proof that all her household were well in this sickly time. Philip bent forward to hear the answer. Mr. Rowland went on to say how still and dull the village was. The shutters up, or the blinds down, and all the grey's windows looked quite sad, and he never saw any of his friends from the corner house in the shrubbery now. They had too many painful duties, he feared, to allow of their permitting themselves such pleasures. But his friends must take care not to overstrain their powers. They and he must be very thankful that their respective households were thus far unvisited by the disease, and they should all, in his opinion, favour their health by the indulgence of a little rational cheerfulness. Hester smiled, aware that never had their household been more cheerful than now. Whether it was that Hester's smile was irresistible, or that other influences were combined with it, it had an extraordinary effect upon Philip. He started forward in front of her, and offered his hand, saying, so as to be heard by her alone, "'Will you not? I have no quarrel with you.' "'And you can suppose,' she replied, in a tone more of compassion than of anger, "'that I have none with you? How strangely you must forget,' she added, as he precipitately withdrew his offered hand and turned from her. "'Forget! I forget!' he murmured, turning his face of woe towards her for one instant. "'How little you know me!' "'How little we all know each other!' said Hester, for the moment careless what construction might be put upon her words. "'Even in this place,' said Dr. Levitt, who had now joined them, and had heard these last words, "'even in this place, where all hearts should be open, and all resentments forgotten, are there any here?' who refused to shake hands at such a time as this. "'It is not for myself,' said Hester, distressed. "'But how can I?' "'It is true, she cannot. Do not blame her, Dr. Levitt,' said Philip. And he was gone. It was this meeting which had cut short Mrs. Rowland's whispers with Mr. Walcott, and brought her down the aisle in all her stateliness, with her train of children behind her. When Hester went home, she thought it right to tell Margaret exactly what had happened. "'I knew it,' was all Margaret said, but her heightened colour during the day told what unspeakable things were in her heart. Hester was occupied with speculations as to what might have been the event if Margaret had been to church, instead of herself. Her husband would only shake his head and look hopeless, but she still thought all might have come right under the influences of the hour whether it were to be wished that Philip and Margaret should understand each other again, was another question. Yesterday Hester would have earnestly desired that Margaret should never see Enderby again. Today she did not know what to wish. She and Margaret came silently to the same conclusion. There is nothing for it but waiting. If he had heard this, Hope would have shaken his head again. End of section 51